I'd just like to apologise for my voice. Uh, my wife, in her best traditions of marriage, has shared it with me. So, <laughs> yeah. Right, today's reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, and Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and verses 8 to 13. I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must, go, must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave gave himself us up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for Linda as she brings um, our reflection this morning. Father God, we thank you for that word, that word of life, which speaks into our hearts and renews our minds in our understanding of you. So we pray that by your spirit you would come and anoint Linda's words, that she would bring a revelation from you of what you would have us hear. And we pray for receiving hearts um, to, to take in all that would be from you for our lives and for our life together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good to see you. Am I alone? Good morning. morning. (laughs) Great, there is somebody out there. (laughs) Well, today we're reaching the the seventh, and actually it's the final study in our series of reflections on Paul's letter to the Christian church at Ephesus. Um, And it's worth remembering that although Paul was writing this letter 2,000 years ago, his words to those very very first first century Christians still have relevance for us here in Camborne. For like Ephesus, we too are a fairly newly established, still fairly young and still emerging church in this place and in this time. And so maybe we do well to pay attention to what Paul is saying in his letter and to seek to interpret and apply it to our own context in the here and now. 
And as we come to the end of this series in Ephesians, I'm going to help us just to recap on the ground that we've covered since September and think about what we've learned individually and as a church community. And you might like to have your Bibles open as we do this starting at the beginning of Ephesians on page 1108. And then you can just cast your eye down, remind yourself of what we've been thinking about and reflecting upon and how it should be making a difference in our living as God's people. In chapter 1, we saw that Paul wanted to get across to his readers and his listeners, because many would have heard the letters read aloud in the church gatherings. He wanted to get across the key messages about God's love and about how God takes the initiative and engages in purposeful activity among human beings in the world that he has created. And Paul speaks of God's grand design for time and space and eternity. And he explains how God invites each of us to participate with him in that grand design. I wonder if you've ever thought that God has chosen you and promised to equip you individually for a particular part of his eternal plan. And that if you don't fulfill that part, nobody else will. It's a unique vocation and commission that God gives to each of us. And it's worth remembering that if we don't step up to what God calls us to do, then that part is delayed in his grand design. So it's a truth to grasp for ourselves. That's how unique That's how special, that's how precious, that's how valued each of us is. Chosen and equipped for God's purposes, individually and together. In chapter 2, Paul went on to unpack in more detail how the original grand design of God the Father, God the Creator, was tragically put at risk through human disobedience and the forces of evil. But God had a rescue plan. And that plan was to send into the world that he had created and which was so marred and scarred by human sin and the powers of evil. The person of Jesus Christ, his own flesh and blood. And what was Jesus' vocation? Well, to bring God's love to all, to bring God close to seek out those who were lost and bring them home so that they could find again their true identity as children of a loving God and experience a fresh start in the life and purposes of God. And as we celebrate communion today here with bread and wine, we're remembering once again that great sacrifice, that great sacrificial love of Jesus for a lost and broken world. Throughout his letter, we see Paul constantly taking his readers and listeners back to that person of Jesus Christ, for it's Jesus who stands at the heart of the good news of God's love, which is what we call the gospel. And it's a truth that we declare in our core values as a church. And you remember that Paul uses the image of the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our individual lives as Christians and of our corporate life as a body of Christian believers. 
And any cornerstone is designed to work in three dimensions, up and in and out. And as I said in an earlier week, if we don't make Christ the cornerstone of our lives individually and corporately, by spending time alone with God, up, by spending time with one another, in, And by spending time with others outside, out, beyond the church walls, then we risk becoming a building that is unsound and unfit for purpose. So, do we make Christ the cornerstone of our lives? Have we taken on board Paul's injunction, Paul's loving um, command almost, And maybe Paul's words are especially timely for us here and now, for as we seek as a church to move forward on a major physical building development project for Camborne, it's going to be even more important, I suggest, that we pay close attention to our inner spiritual growth and development as individuals and as a church family. We may achieve, with God's help, a wonderful external physical structure but if the spiritual life of the people who claim to belong to it is not in good shape we are unlikely to fulfill God's purposes and there are different ways we do this we do it through prayer together and individually we do it through worship on a Sunday morning and at other times day by day week by week We do it through other means like our small groups, our gift day, our membership service and our members meeting. All these are ways that God enables us to grow in faith and knowledge and love of him. And if we don't grasp the love, the deep, deep love of Christ in all its breadth and length and height and depth and the ways that I just mentioned help us to do this, then we're not going to know the lasting transformative power, either in our lives or in the lives of others. And Paul, in chapter 4, went on to emphasize how it's that love, that deep, deep love, transforming love of Christ that changes human relationships and holds his church together in unity. And I understand that George Mucheru spoke powerfully a few weeks ago on the importance of unity within and across God's church, challenging us to recognize and to repent of the ways in which disunity continues to scar the body of Christ, his church, in our own day. And I do wonder if in a local ecumenical partnership such as this one, We may be too easily pay lip service to the notion of church unity, even take it for granted because it's built in structurally for us. What does it mean to be a church of differing traditions? And how do we value those traditions? And how do we learn from them and grow through them? Something else for us to be aware of in our growing together in faith. It's noticeable in chapter 4 that Paul links unity in the Christian faith and knowledge of God with growth towards spiritual maturity. 
And I wonder if Paul felt that the Christians who were gathering in that early church at Ephesus were struggling to achieve unity in the faith they claimed to share, partly because they had a lot of spiritual growing up to do. Is it similar here? Do we face a similar problem here in Camborne Church? Are some of the challenges and the issues that we are currently facing as a church precisely because we have some serious spiritual growing up to do, both individually and together? And if that is the case, then how are we going to address that over the coming months and years? individually and together. It's clear from his letters that Paul frequently issued a challenge to the growing um, and but still newly established churches in different parts of the area that he traveled. He issued a challenge to them to grow and develop towards greater spiritual maturity. But alongside that challenge, we can see that he seeks to encourage them in that ongoing process of development. He reassures them that God provides all that is needed to support healthy growth and spiritual development among his people. And how does this happen? Well, according to Paul, the building up of the body of Christ happens when those whom God brings together in a church are encouraged to share and develop their gifts and talents for the benefit of everyone. Those specific gifts that God has given to them for that purpose. Growth and maturity comes when ministries of all types, not just the handful that Paul lists in this letter or in any of his other letters, when ministries of all types are discerned and nurtured, encouraged and exercised and monitored in an appropriate and accountable way under the loving direction of Jesus himself for the benefit of all. And I have to say, I sense this is an area of our church life where we have scope for further development, building on the many gifts and talents that emerged from within the church during last year's vacancy. And so, says Paul in chapter 4, verse 16, from him, from Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And it's no surprise then that that particular verse is the verse that has been on the front of the membership booklet for some years because it challenges us into making our contribution, becoming spiritually mature, At the start of today's Bible reading, we see in chapter 4, verse 17, the next verse after the one I've just read, another of those hinge phrases that Paul uses so often in his letters. In verse 17, he writes, So, I tell you this, and I do more than that, I insist on it in the Lord. This is important. 
This is really serious. Take note, says Paul, to the church at Ephesus. But more than that, Paul's choice of wording suggests he's going to make a logical connection with what he's been talking about, with what has gone before. If all that I have told you up to now is true, says Paul, then certain things must surely follow. As day follows night. And indeed he goes on to present a before and after scenario, contrasting for us what life looks like without God with what it looks like or should look like when people come to know and love God. He compares the attitudes and behaviors of those who have not yet received the love, grace, and mercy of God with the attitudes and behaviors of those who are alive in Christ and have committed to being members of Christ's body. There has to be a difference, says Paul. Things cannot remain the same. Something must change. I don't know exactly what the problems at the church of Ephesus were or any of the other churches. We have some indications from Paul's letters. There was undoubtedly a growing church congregation of some sort at Ephesus. But I suspect the question in Paul's mind and the motivation for him writing this letter was whether this newly established emerging congregation was truly living out the life of the body of Christ, or whether it was more of a gathering of people with shared interests and concerns. And I wonder if Paul was concerned what he saw of the attitudes and behaviors in the young Christian church at Ephesus. Did their way of life fail to reflect the renewed attitudes and behaviors that come from the new life of Christ? Were they still tempted to put on the old self, perhaps because it was more comfortable to put on and wear something you're familiar with, something you're used to, something you've grown to love, actually, rather than the new self which God wants to see his disciples clothed in? Were they being a bit like the disciples that Jesus challenged very often when they were focusing on the wrong things or concerned with working out who was the greatest among them? It's just being human, but maybe Paul felt they still had a lot of spiritual growing up to do. So what about us? Do we sometimes find ourselves tempted to slip conveniently into those old clothes, those negative attitudes and behaviors, those careless or intentionally harmful thoughts, words, and actions that ultimately fail to reflect God's ways and that cast a shadow of darkness over our own lives and our relationships with others, and our own life with God. 
And in the rest of chapter 4, Paul explicitly lists some of those negative attitudes and behaviors that are contrary to God's pattern for healthy living. It's easy to dismiss much of Paul's list as things we don't normally do. That's, those are not our problems. But I wonder if we can get off so lightly. What if we were to paraphrase his list a bit, to describe these negative attitudes and behaviors in a slightly more subtle and challenging way for us? We might speak of twisting the truth to our own advantage or being economical with the truth. We might speak of quietly helping ourselves to things which are actually not rightfully ours to take or to use. We might think of being careless in our choice of words and how we speak to or about others. We might think of being resentful when things are not working out the way we think they should or behaving negligently or unwisely in our relationships with others. I wonder if any of those attitudes or behaviors prick your conscience as they do mine. Happily, Paul doesn't just seek to convict and condemn the Christians at Ephesus for their weaknesses and failings. Instead, like any good teacher, Paul presents a positive alternative, which he wants to use to reassure them, to inspire them, to encourage them on their journey of faith towards maturity. And so he lists many of those positive attitudes and behaviors that should characterize the lives of God's people. Kindness and compassion, generosity and forgiveness, goodness, righteousness and truth. All of them characteristics that reflect God himself. In fact, Paul says, be like God. Follow God's example. And he's realistic. He says, if you need an accessible example to hold on to and to follow for your daily living, then look at Jesus. Look at Jesus' earthly life of love and self-giving. Grow up like Jesus. Become mature, says Paul, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, to quote Paul accurately. Leave behind the toddler and the infant years. Grow up to be like Jesus. If we were able to have a metaphorical sort of Christ measure up the wall instead of a tape measure, then I wonder if we would be able to mark on the wall a steady progression upwards for ourselves each time we measured ourselves against that standard. Happily, God gives most of us a whole lifetime in which to grow up physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually but he also expects us to take some responsibility for healthy growth, to play our part in that successful growth process. 
getting the right sort of nourishment, physically and spiritually. Taking the right sort of exercise, physically and spiritually. Balancing work with rest and refreshment. And maybe there's a case for having a spiritual health check from time to time with a trusted minister or a small group leader or a good Christian friend. Or perhaps we can use the upcoming membership service and the members meeting or the reflective period before Christmas known as Advent to review how we are growing spiritually in our life with God and with one another. Our cars need an MOT every year to check they're in good working order. We don't often talk about a spiritual MOT. But if we're to be in good working order, it might not be a bad thing. All growing things need light if they are to flourish, grow to maturity, and be fruitful. So it's not surprising that Paul uses the imagery of light and darkness in this part of his letter. Live as children of light, says Paul, and allow that light to bear good fruit in your lives for the benefit of all. Paul is echoing the quotation in Matthew's Gospel, which also uses the image of light in a verse from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus refers to a city on a hill which casts light for all to see, a beacon of hope and welcome, a community to which people are drawn and where they can meet and encounter God through his people. And the bottom line is that if we fail to grow in God's light, and if we fail to live as children of light, then the city on the hill will fail to fulfill the purpose for which it is intended. And God's grand design that Paul spoke so passionately about in chapter 1 will once again be put at risk in our time and our place. I'd like to end this time of reflection by playing an animated version of the Casting Crown song that some of you will know called City on a Hill. I think it echoes powerfully some of the themes we've been considering in chapters 4 and 5 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And some of the themes such as unity, maturity, the sharing of our gifts and living as children of light with attitudes and behaviours that are renewed by Christ at work in us rather than shaped by our former life. And I hope that the song and the images that we see will just challenge us at the end of this series of reflections in Ephesians to think about what can happen if we fail to live as children of light. Sit one on 
summer It once shined bright and it would be shining still But they all started turning on each other were shallow and the soldiers thought the poets were weak and the elders saw the young ones as foolish and the rich man never heard the poor man speak and one by one they ran away with their made-up minds to leave it all behind and the light began to fade in the city on the hill thought that they knew better that they were different by design instead of standing strong together they let their differences divide and one by one they ran away with their made-up minds to leave it all behind and the light began to fade in the city on the hill Father's call 